Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as royal family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for making your gospel the one doctrine that matters most in all of this quest of ours, this endeavor. Thank you for making it clear and simple such that even a child can understand it and be given faith. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make all this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. The Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 3. Now is the time to focus. Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting what lies behind. Matthew 6.34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. That cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage of the grace we've been given here once again this evening. Turn your Bibles, please, to Jude 3, book before Revelation. Jude 3. As we settle into the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 3, it's a good place to start. Uh, gives a bit of the motivation that the Spirit's been giving us uh, as to why. Why the Gospel, most of you have historically, I believe, thought that you've had the Gospel down pat, but uh, I doubt that's necessarily the case. And what happens is, if that core doctrine in your soul is even off a little bit, uh, what happens is as the components of it extrapolate out in your life, as they sort of extend out in your life, you can end up somewhere somewhat distant from truth, even when it comes to something like sanctification. And that's why these three topics, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, are strung together after that work we did on the judicial aspect of justification by faith. Jude 3, but this is uh, why the spirits had me teaching this. It's very important, folks. We've got to get the gospel right. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So Jude was facing a very similar circumstance as we are even this day. Again, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Up here in the board, that's from epigonismi in the Greek, contend, comes from the fierce competition of the athletic field. That's the etymology of the word, the history, if you would, of the Greek word for contend. So we see a real struggle here. It's not just uh, this passive struggle. It's a real struggle that you contend earnestly for that faith, for the faith. comes from the fierce competition of the athletic field. It means to struggle, to fight with all one's strength. And that's a reference to preserving the faith. What are we fighting for, folks? We're preserving the faith. Satan, 
The world wants to pervert the entirety of it, wants to pervert faith, grace, the gospel proper, all of it. And so we are here uh, as ambassadors, as soldiers for Christ to fight this battle. And it's a good fight, as Paul would say. How about once for all? That's hapax in the Greek. Again, it's that you contend earnestly for the faith that which, uh, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Once for all, some hapax it means, refers to the fact that the gospel message was given to the church at the beginning. It had not come in installments. Its content is fixed, not to be revised for each new era. That's what hapax. It means it was given once at the beginning. So we need to contend. We need to fight for this faith because it's not changing. The world will tell you that this, even the gospel, if you look at history, I've been doing a whole lot of homework, folks, on this topic. The gospel today looks very little like the gospel that Jesus Christ presented. And that is a true statement. And that's why we're fighting this good fight. That's why we are here even this evening contending for the original faith to preserve what was meant to be preserved. No one else is going to do it, folks, if it's not the church, right? So Jude 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude was obviously fighting the good fight of faith, verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's begin up here on the board. Faith. Faith will produce works. It's not a matter of whether or not it will. To assume that faith will not produce works means that God's a liar. Faith will produce works. It is the great litmus test for those who proclaim to be saved. It's impossible for a believer to not produce works. If a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. Again, faith will produce works. It's the great litmus test for all of us. For anyone who proclaims to be saved, it's impossible for a believer to not produce works. If a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. Now let's go to a chapter that speaks wholly about faith, so we'll ease ourselves into this. Go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. So faith is on the block here, folks, because faith, uh, biblical faith, has been under attack now for, well, since the beginning of mankind, obviously, but it's been under a special type of attack ever since, as I taught you maybe a year and a half ago, the printing press and the doctrines upon doctrines of men and these kinds of things, and people losing sight of the one thing that started it all, as Romans 1.17 says, the righteous shall live by faith, from faith to faith, do you see? So Hebrews 11.1, now faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Have a seat, sir. Try to make it on time next time, please. It's distracting. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So again, the point on the board, faith will produce works. It is the great litmus test for those who proclaim to be saved. It's impossible for a believer to not produce works. If a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. Now, I didn't say that. That's from the Word of God. Just consult Jesus Christ. Consult John the Apostle. Consult Paul. Consult James, just to name a few. These are the facts in the Bible. Again, now, so faith is on the block here, folks. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Up here on the board. Most systematic theologies are in agreement with these three elements of faith. I'll give you what Strong and Burkhoff states. Three elements of faith. Knowledge, from the Greek word natitia. It's the intellectual element of faith. Ascent, which is from ascensus in the Greek. It's the emotional element of faith. And trust, which is fiducia. Uh, the volitional or voluntary element of faith. So these three elements of faith we need to keep in mind. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Again, Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a brief definition. Not the fullness of it, but certainly uh, a nice, concise definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let's, let's look what the Bible has to say about faith. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. What did he do? He had a work, folks. He had faith and it produced what? A sacrifice, a good sacrifice. Uh, a godly fruit, if you would. So there you have your instance so far, and we've just gotten to the first person. Abel did something. He produced fruit because he had faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He did something. He became a witness. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who what? Who seek him. Oh, no, sir, we don't do that here. That's all right. I appreciate the exuberance. So again, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who, what? Seek him. Seek inquires or requires or implies what? Trust. There's your fiducia part of faith. There's your trust issue. He is a rewarder of those who 
seek Him. You do not seek a Lord that you do not trust, folks. So you have to ask yourself, before we even go any further, what are you trusting in? Ask yourself that right now. What is it that you're trusting in? Or is it better to say who? Is it a list of promises or a person? What are you trusting in? A list of promises or a person? Facts about a person or the actual person? Well, if that person is both Lord and Savior, but a person comes along and says, well, I'd like to have a Savior, but I don't want a Lord. I don't need a Lord. Well, then that, what does that mean? It means that that person is what? Unsaved. That's a different gospel. If they don't want all of the person, they don't get any of him. And that's what we're going to continue to discover in Scripture. That's what we discovered with the ruler, the rich ruler who said, how do I get eternal life? He says, I've already upheld all the law, which is ridiculous. But Jesus went with it and said, okay, you've got a problem, my friend. You're still clung to your riches. Get rid of all that stuff. Give it all the poor. And then what? Follow me. Repent from the old life. Come after me. What did the rich man do? Walked away. He wanted salvation. He didn't want a Lord. And that's a hard issue. And that's an issue that needs to be considered at salvation time, if you would. Therefore, it is part repentance, as we'll see is part of the gospel proper even. So again, it means this person that says they don't need a Lord is unsaved. Why? Because they rejected the Savior, even though they may have accepted the facts of Him and maybe even the work on the cross. That's why it is remiss of us to say, hey, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And someone says yes, and you say, wow, you're saved. That may not be true. There are other things that need to be considered. Hold your thumb there. Go to John 5.38. John 5.38. In other words, the Spirit is not letting us off the hook, so to speak, when it comes to the Gospel proper, even when it comes to faith, and as we'll see, grace, as we continue this study. John 5.38 You do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. He said, follow Me, remember, not just My doctrines. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about what? Me. My person. And you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have eternal life. What was the fundamental error of the Pharisees at the time? The intellectuals then were the same as the intellectuals now. They believed that mental assent only will get you saved. If you have all the facts and you believe them to be true, somehow that's enough. But they didn't want to follow Him. They wanted to be their own Lord. They wanted facts. They wanted a Savior. They thought they had it. And what does He say at the end of it all? Get away from me. I never knew you. And this is a distinction that the Spirit wants to make for all of you. He said, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The intellectuals focused on the facts of salvation, just not the Lord. 
which is why they didn't even recognize him. There's the person of the Scripture, and they didn't recognize him. Why? Because they didn't seek the person. They sought the facts, and then they sought to put themselves and everyone else around them into bondage under the facts. And that's a huge error that we see in our own, I shouldn't say our own, but the gospel even of today. John 10.25, go there. John 10.25. So this is an important distinction that the Spirit's making. And it is a slight, well, it's not slight, but it is an alteration to many of your conception of the gospel as a whole. John 10.25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? Follow me. Sir, you can't do that. You're distracting me. I love it, but just hold, okay? Appreciate it. Thanks. No, no problem. Did he say, follow my doctrines or my promises? What's the answer? No. Have a good day, sir. Again, let's read John 10.25 again. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. We are talking about a person, not the facts of a person, folks. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they what? They follow what? Me, a person. Did he say, follow my doctrines or my promises? No. And you need to remember that. So, salvation is personal, folks. There's a lot of Gospels out there, especially in the last 50 years or so, and they're easily traced back to just a couple of individuals who spent a lot of time um, propagating a watered-down Gospel. There's a lot of Gospels out there that have taken the person out of the equation, that have made it about mental assent and not about a person. And that's a big problem. Salvation is personal, folks. He says, you're to follow me. Of course I have teachings, but you'll follow my teachings if you follow and you're committed to who? Me. This is about a commitment to a person, folks. This is believing. This is fiducia. This is trusting in another person. As your Lord and Savior, taking everything you are and putting yet faith in Him. Do you see the difference? And there's a lot of people out there that are putting a whole lot of faith in doctrines. And often they're doctrines of men, unfortunately. So Jesus Christ, salvation is personal. Jesus Christ made salvation a personal issue, not a doctrinal one. A personal issue, not a doctrinal one. Only faith from God, not human faith in doctrines, can save. And faith, as we've seen in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is what? A gift. Only faith from God, not human faith in doctrines. You can have all the faith you want. It Was Jesus Christ a man? 
I could get an unbeliever to say that. Was Jesus Christ a so-called famous teacher? I could get an unbeliever to say that. Was Jesus Christ hung on a cross? I could get an unbeliever to assent to that mentally. But that's not what saves. So human faith does not save, folks. Only faith from God, faith that is a gift from God, can save. So we better understand what faith is along the way as well. Only faith from God can save. It is a gift given when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nothing less. The implications of the point on the board are very simple, folks. However, for some of you, like even I have been in the past, have been confused and even insecure about such things. Why? Because there's a strain of theology out there that is new, by the way, that's only a half a decade, a half a century old. There's a strain of theology out there that many of us have been infected with over the years. However, rather than posture these lessons on some theological argument, the Spirit wants me to present you with the Scriptures that bear the revelation of the true gospel. The fundamental person we're going to be consulting is the same one that is able to save us, Jesus Christ who said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That is a relationship, folks, not a mental assent to facts, not some watered-down gospel, folks. You have to fo- if you're to follow Him, you have to leave something behind. It says in Scripture that the Lord that we have as an unbeliever is the same Lord that is the God of this world, We follow in His footsteps. We're under His domain, His sovereignty, otherwise known as the sovereignty of what? Sin. That's Satan's domain. And Paul says very clearly, you're either a slave of this one or this one. You're either a slave of unrighteousness or righteousness. You're never not a slave. And you can't be a slave to both. So you have to make a choice. And Jesus Christ said, you will make a choice for me or against me. But my sheep will hear my voice, and they will turn around from that and follow me. That's very important, folks, because we're following a person. For how long now from the pulpit has the emphasis been on a real relationship? Think about the people that you know that may have just mentally assented to some gospel, some watered-down gospel. And then ask yourself, how much love, how much fruit did they produce? How much true love did you see in their lives? How much peace, how much contentment, how much X, Y, Z? You have to ask those questions, folks. I know it's painful. Let me ask you this. If he meant to say, again, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If he meant to say, and they follow my teachings, he would have stated it that way. But he didn't, and he doesn't. Following his teachings is a subset of following him as Lord up here on the board. I was thinking about this in practical terms, and this might help. If God simply wanted mankind to believe in the doctrines of his Son, 
He could have simply had his spirit inspire scripture that described him. But he didn't just do that. God became a man, a person that we can all relate to even now. Again, if God simply wanted mankind to believe in the doctrines of his son, he could have simply had his spirit inspire scripture that described him, but he didn't just do that. God became man, he is still man, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. A person that we can all relate to even now. So, the great error in some modern ministries is that there are hordes of people following doctrines rather than Christ the person. And it starts with salvation, folks. Listen, if you can pervert the gospel, then everything that follows is also what? Perverted. If the And you know how I like to picture it, from faith to faith is a spiritual vector, let's call it. The starting point is what? From faith, which is salvation. If you can move the starting point, then you've moved the entire spiritual vector. That's very dangerous, folks. So the great error in some modern ministries is that there are hordes of people following doctrines rather than Christ the person. Again, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give. I give eternal life to them, and they will never never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the reason for this little sidebar in John 10 up here on the board Salvation is personal. Jesus Christ made salvation a personal issue, not a doctrinal one. Only faith from God, not human faith and doctrines, can save. It is a gift given when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, nothing else. Again, Jesus Christ made salvation a personal issue, not a doctrinal one. Only faith from God, not human faith in doctrines, can save. It is a gift given when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, nothing else. One of the biggest, most immediate, most obvious perversions some of you might be familiar with is an individual or individuals taking the word pistis, which is translated faith, and saying, well, that's the same thing as doctrine. And what happens in Romans 1.17 when you supplant, let's say, pistis with the word doctrine instead of faith, which has everything to do with all of Christ. The righteous man shall live by what? Doctrine? From doctrine to doctrine? Is this what we're basing our great hope on? Doctrine? Or is it a person? Is it much, much greater than that? Well, let's see. We've still got some development to do. Go back to the Hall of Fame now. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6. So we have, again, still faith proper on the table. <clears throat> I, hope you had, I hope you appreciate how I handled that little distraction right there. I expected it. 
you teach on the gospel, you're going to be distracted. Okay, so don't let it distract you any more than just whatever it was. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Seek diligently, you shall what? Find Him. Seek with all your heart, you shall find Him. That was Jeremiah, right? What do we seek? Or is it better to say, not what, who? Who are we seeking? We're seeking Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This chapter in this tremendous book implores us to remember two simple facts that Paul and James spoke to as well. So I just want to, the Spirit wants to add this to the mix as we're reading about faith in Hebrews 11, because it's by faith that these people are doing what? Producing works. Because that's what, as we started off with, faith does. True faith will produce work. It's not a matter of, well, I was carnal the rest of my life. That's garbage. That's a cheap gospel. A true convert will produce good fruit. It's not a matter of if it's absolute. And if they don't, says the Bible, then they're not saved. And we're not talking about the issue of never sinning again or somehow sinless perfection. That's ridiculousness. We're certainly not talking about legalism. We're talking about proof. But nonetheless, up here on the board to get things ironed out so you don't get awry. Faith and works. Paul stated that works are not the basis of receiving faith. Romans 3.28 says that. James stated that saving faith will produce works. James 2.17. Those are the two things that you need to remember, folks, in addition to what we've got on the table. Paul stated that works are not the basis of receiving faith. That's legalism. That's religion. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's not what I'm teaching at all. That's heresy. James stated, though, with equal amplitude, if you would, that saving faith, true faith, will produce works. That's James 2.17. But those are two different situations. You see, they're two different, let's call them defenses of the gospel in the word of God. So don't get confused. These are two different arguments that ought never be mashed together. They are harmonious with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we press on with the multitude of examples of true faith and the works it produces. Hebrews 11.7 Look, if it wasn't important, if it wasn't important to note the works, then the works wouldn't be listed. Let's read. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence did what? Prepared an ark. He actually did something for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, what? Obeyed. He did something because that's what true faith does. By going out to a place which he was to receive 
for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Jump to verse 11. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered something. He did something. He offered up his own son, Isaac. That's what faith does. It has works. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed. He did something. Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed. He did something. Each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He did something. Verse 23, By faith, Pharaoh's daughters in view, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. Moses did something. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She did something. And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of uh, Samuel, and the prophets. They did things. That's what this is about, folks. It says faith, by faith, what? They did something. By faith, the hall of fame of faith. By faith, what? They did things. Faith will produce works. So you see, works is not a dirty word, folks. Works is actually part of even the gospel reality that once you believe, you will produce works. And if you don't have true faith, then you're going to be minus works. That's what James says. Read James 2. That's what John says. If you see someone in need and you don't help them, where's the love? How can the love of God abide in you? Again, all these folks, these prophets, they did something. Verse 33. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. This is, these are the martyrs, folks. They went out in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all of these having gained approval through their faith. And otherwise, we'll get there maybe some other day, that that is the approval is for works. <laughs> and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So, again, we must understand that faith produces works. That's very important. You might be saying, why is the Spirit pouncing on that? I know, Pastor Ed, I know it. I know what you're saying. We've known this for a long time. You've got to have that up front so that when we get to the other good work, it makes more sense, okay? We must understand that faith produces works without fail. Without fail. There's a whole lot of people out there that present a gospel that say, if you just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you mentally ascend, you're going to heaven, go ahead and go back to your old life now. doesn't matter if you're changed one bit. That's what's being presented out there. But that's a lie. That would be calling God a liar. That would be calling Jesus Christ a liar. Faith will produce works, folks. Period. So you might be saying, but we've known that for some time now. And I bet you do know that faith produces works. But I doubt many of you, if any, have done the work that takes you all the way back to the gospel presentation. I wonder if you understand how that statement is integral even to saving faith. So hold that thought. Again, it's important for us to remember the side things as well up here on the board. Excuse me. Paul stated that works are not the basis of receiving faith, Romans 3.28. James stated that saving faith will produce works, James 2.17. So do not confuse those things. They are both harmonious with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's no different gospels, folks. There's no gospel of Jesus Christ and gospel of grace and all that garbage. And gospel of old and gospel of new. That's garbage. There's one gospel. It's always been one gospel. So... So far, you tell me what the common fruit in the Hall of Fame of faith is. What was the common fruit? It was works. By faith, all of those people did things. And God found that, what? Acceptable. And he, that was evidence of his approval, if you would. In other words, as I stated earlier, faith will produce works. It is the great litmus test for those who proclaim to be saved. It's impossible for a believer to not produce works. If a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. So then, 
the big question, I suppose, is what is faith? What is faith? True faith must be in all of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, something you can do, or is it a gift? Gift. When God gives gifts, He gives things perfectly. And when He says, I'm going to give you faith in my Son, your Lord and Savior, it's going to be in all of Him. All His offices, all His facets, all of Him in that relationship. That's the only way you can get to me, is through Him, the person, not by some mental ascension. And I hope you see what the Spirit's getting at. True faith must be in all of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, at the gospel, at your so-called salvation, you can't say, I'll take the Savior, but I don't want the Lord. Because if you don't want the Lord, then you don't want to leave the old life behind, do you? And Jesus Christ himself started off his public ministry with, with the word repent. That means to turn away from the old life. That's what he meant. That was what was implied when he said, follow me. You can't follow me if you're still holding on to the old life. You have to detest sin. You have to realize that you are depraved. And there is nothing you could ever do that could possibly be righteous in my father's eyes. And the only way you'll ever be righteous is if he imputes righteousness to your account. And the only way that happens is if you believe in me, if you follow me, says the Lord. You see? It's very important, folks, because there's a lot of people out there that made that mistake, even presented it as a mistake to others. Just believe this coin, will you? Just Here's John 3.16. Look, it's on the back of my T-shirt. John 3.16, you see? Just believe that. Do you believe? Yeah, all right, let's go to the game. Woo, you're in, man, you're going to heaven. And off they run back to their old life, just like the rich man, the ruler, wanted to do, and Jesus Christ said, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh, you don't have me. So true faith must be in all of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's that's what the Lord God gives us. He says, I'm going to give you a faith in my son. I'm going to give you faith in me. So it must be in all of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because as the Spirit just pointed out in Scripture, salvation is a personal issue. Hebrews 11.1 1 helps us with this fact. That's point one on the table in this chapter. It defines, gives us a short definition of faith, but adequate to get us going in that particular chapter. Point two that we've noted is that a saved person will produce fruit. Faith is, by faith, that's what we just noted. Two points. We know what faith is. We know that faith produces fruit. Remember that. A saved person has Christ's heart now, and it is impossible for them to turn their back on Him for sin. Not saying we can't sin, but we are talking about the desires of the heart, folks. We're talking about the direction, the spiritual vector from faith to faith. You can't go backwards. You'd never want to because Jesus Christ doesn't want you to. 
The old sin nature may get the best of you through temptation and you may fail for a moment, but you know what? The repentant heart that you had at salvation is the same repentant heart that 1 John 1, 9 says, I'm going to confess it because I hate sin. And if you didn't have the repentant heart then, then you don't have the repentant now. If you just want a little protocol then, then that's what you want now. Get it? Protocol at salvation, protocol for confession versus a heart, a repentant heart at salvation. He grants you that repentance from there on out by faith, a repentant heart every time you sin. Do you see the difference? One's mental ascension, one's heart. One is doctrine, one is a person. You see what happens when you fuss with little words like pistis? A saved person has Christ's heart now, and it is impossible for them to turn their back on Him for sin. And we're talking about the desires of the heart. So those Gospels that say you can be saved and then run off and live a carnal life without the Lord are false. Those Gospels, little g, that say you can be saved, excuse me, and then run off and live a carnal life without the Lord are false. Up here on the board. A person saves us, not the facts about him. A person saves us, not the facts about him. Jesus Christ said, follow me, not just certain aspects of me or my office or even just my good work on the cross. He wants you to follow him, his person. Again, a person saves us, not the facts about him. So, let's slow down now and go back and develop this concept of faith a little further. Go back to Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1. Again, here's a brief definition which really is enough for this particular chapter. Obviously, it's not every facet of faith proper, but it certainly is appropriate as it is inspired by God the Holy Spirit Himself to lead us into the remainder of the chapter, this hall of fame of faith. What's He really trying to say? Well, let's read it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the confidence, the trust, if you would, of things not seen. So again, this begs us to consider these three basic elements of faith. Well, you have to have knowledge, right? You have to know, you have to have knowledge. Think of Romans uh, 1. God tells you you're going to have knowledge of Him. At some point, you're going to be faced with the gospel truth, which is typically Jesus Christ and the, the gospel presentation. You have to have knowledge You have to assent, which is even an emotional element. means your heart has to be into it. You have to assent. And then trust, which is fiducia, the volitional, voluntary element, element, which is really, uh, or hearkens to, believing itself. So three elements of faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. 
Why is the Spirit bringing this up? It's because of the following principle up here in the board. Saving faith. Salvation requires a person to embrace the person of Christ, not simply his promises about eternal life. We must acknowledge, assent, and trust in him. It's one thing to trust a promise. It's another to trust a person. The true gospel is the latter. It's one thing to trust a promise, folks. It's another thing to trust a person. Again, saving faith, salvation requires a person embrace the person of Christ, not simply his promises about eternal life. We must acknowledge, assent, and trust in him. It's one thing to trust a promise. It's another to trust a person. The true gospel is the latter. The point of all of this so far in this series is an issue of faith up here on the board. Who has it and who doesn't? Who has it and who doesn't? It is through faith that a person is saved. We know this from Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So if a person has the wrong faith and the wrong gospel, they remain unsaved. Faith, who has it and who doesn't. It is through faith that a person is saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear on that subject. So if a person then has the wrong faith in the wrong gospel, they remain unsaved. Well, that's a problem, folks. And you think about how slick Satan is. How, how much he loves a gospel that precludes or excludes the person of Jesus Christ. How much he loves it when people are attracted to and cling to and have faith in mere doctrines or facts. How much he loves that. As long as it's not Jesus Christ the person I can get, I can jump on the internet, find a historian right now that's an unbeliever that will tell you all the facts of Jesus Christ and have faith that they're true. But they're an unbeliever. So how can that be? The only way it applies to you, the only way you trust in Him, is if you trust Him as Lord rather than the Lord you have now. The only way you accept that invitation, in other words, is if you accept the person for who he says he is. So who has it and who doesn't? It is through faith that a person is saved. So if a person has the wrong faith and the wrong gospel, they, are, they remain unsaved. The practical danger of a false gospel is that it may give false hope to those who have never repented of sin. In other words, they, don't, they haven't even gotten, their soil's not ripe enough yet. That's why, like we'll see in the parable of the soils, they go, oh yeah, I love it, this is awesome, it's a big emotional upheaval, right? 
5,000 saved at a rally. Woo! All they said was John 3.16 and Acts 16.31. After some music. Nobody even talked. No, they, don't even, they haven't even considered their depravity yet. You know why? Because they don't think anything's wrong with it. They like their life. They just figure this free gift thing, this cheap grace says, oh, you mean I can go to heaven too and not denounce, not realize that I'm depraved and that I actually need a Savior? That I need to be saved? What? From sin. Finish the sentence as I've taught. What are you saved from after all? I'm saved. Does that mean just you go to heaven? No, you're saved from sin. You're saved from something, from spiritual death. But see, the, depraved, the person who doesn't realize they're depraved doesn't realize that they're spiritually dead even, hasn't considered it. And they go, I just get a free gift? And you say, if I, if I just say this prayer with you and, and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't have to go to that place called hell? I'm totally in. Woo, yeah, okay, let's go back to our old life. Because that's where our lordship is. We don't submit to Jesus. We just said these things. Our Lord is still over here in the sovereignty of sin. But Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. I think that's John 19.30. I and the Father are one. I am God. Before Abraham was, I, I, I am. I am the sovereign. I am the Lord of both believers and unbelievers. But you have to believe it. And you have to accept it. You have to follow me. And I'm God. (laughs) So you can't have two gods, right? Doesn't the word of God say that? You can't have two masters? You're going to despise the one and and, uh, love the other or the other way around? That's why the person who never wants to let go of the sin life ends up despising Jesus Christ and runs off denouncing the faith, denouncing everything because someone somewhere along the line gave him a garbage gospel and say it didn't work yeah you know why it didn't work you're not seeing any of the fruit because you never really actually believed in the lord jesus christ you just said a prayer do you see the difference this is what the spirit's picking at folks this is serious business faith who has it and who doesn't it is through faith that a person is saved So if a person has wrong faith in the wrong gospel, they remain unsaved. And as we'll continue to see in Scripture, and I'm just about out of time, since repentance is also a gift from God, a person without a lifelong hatred of sin cannot be saved. In other words... Let's pretend, let's postulate for a moment. Let's scenario plan. Person A says, I'm totally saved. I'm totally saved. But I have no desire whatsoever after my so-called salvation. I don't really hate sin. I like my life. I like my self-righteousness. I could care less about Jesus Christ as my Lord. I'm glad he's my Savior, Well, that's not fruit, is it? That person has a problem. And if that person hears this message, they know they have a problem. If they're humble, 
or they'll just find a different church that's teaching some watered-down gospel to fill seats and meet quotas or whatever. This is serious business, folks. If you have the, if you have, look, if, if God's gifts are perfect, everybody agree, and there's no shifting shadow, all good things are from heaven, all perfect gifts. So he gives you faith. Do you think for one second that that faith could possibly even tolerate the thought of being a sinner? Which is why Paul says, even when he says in Romans, I want to say five, four or five, I do the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I want to do, but I desire to do the good things. In other words, it's the desire of the heart. Paul still sinned, just like everyone in here, including myself, is probably going to sin before we go home tonight. Probably in the ride home when someone cuts you off. You know, that goes right. But the desire is there. The repulsion of sin is there. The same repulsion that you realize, that when you realize that you were depraved, when God reached out to you and said, you know what, you're depraved. I'm God, you're not. You need my perfect righteousness. You're depraved in sin. That same repulsiveness that turned you to the Lord is the same one that's etched in cement in your soul every step you take in life thereafter. Hence, 1 John 1, 9. It's not a protocol. The last time I taught it, I said, what say you of sin? Do you remember? That was how I taught it. What say you of sin? If you hate it, you confess it. You acknowledge it. Because you hate it. It's the same hatred you had at your salvation if, if you're saved. Do you get it? There's a continuum. But, if you take that portion out of the gospel, then it's not here either. That gospel allows a person to go on thinking they're going to heaven and have no fruit, no desire for fruit, no abhorrence of their own depravity. And someone told them Satan's lies, they're still going to heaven. And, and I'll end with this. What did Paul say? He said, he said, I'm afraid that you'll be deceived by the serpent like Eve. Of what? The simplicity and purity of devotion to the facts about Christ. No. Jesus Christ. The person. Keep thinking about that uh, this weekend. We've got a lot of work left to do. I've lost my voice anyways, and we're two minutes over, so let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.